0: Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children
1: and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block
0: and Zoe Bisbing, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two. Here to help you help your children fully bloom.
1: A quick reminder that this podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. We want to take a
0: moment to thank our patrons who help us create resources for a diverse audience. If you're moved by the mission of the Full Bloom Project and find our work valuable, please consider becoming an official patron to help keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong. And as a new benefit, patrons can submit their body positive parenting questions to be answered in a future podcast episode in season three. Write in whatever body positive question is on your mind and we'll find a qualified researcher or expert to respond to the question on the show. Become a patron now and have your question expertly answered at www.fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.
1: So welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 47. This week, we're talking with Dr. Laura Thomas, who's a registered nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor specializing in intuitive eating, mindful eating, and weight-inclusive non-diet nutrition. She has a PhD in nutritional sciences from Texas A&M University and did her postdoctoral training at Cornell University in community nutrition.
0: I didn't realize she went to school here in the U.S. Laura established the London Center for Intuitive Eating in 2017 and in January 2019 published her first book, Just Eat It, How to Get Your Shit Together Around Food. We loved our conversation with Dr. Thomas about the value of intuitive eating for people of all ages and her very practical advice for how parents can best raise kids who have a healthy relationship with food and their bodies, and who can enjoy a variety of different
1: foods. Laura, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm
2: excited to be here and to, to talk to you about this topic, which um, I'm really
1: passionate about and um, hopefully will be helpful for your listeners as well. I'm sure it will be um, helpful. So tell us who you are. Tell our listeners who you are and what brought you to your passion around this topic.
2: Yeah, so my name is Laura Thomas. I'm a registered uh, nutritionist based in London in the UK um, and I'm director of the London Centre for Intuitive Eating. Um, Some people might know me through my podcast Don't Stop My Game or my book Just Eat It and I actually come from an academic background where I did a lot of of research in sort of psychosocial determinants of behavior change. Uh, So it's always, you know, behavior around food has always been a real interest of mine. But then when I came into my, my private practice, I was just doing more general nutrition stuff. And I noticed that most, if not all of my clients were presenting with some form or another of disordered eating. And that really led me to, re not retrain, but I suppose upskill in intuitive eating. And then I just got sucked down the whole haze rabbit hole, as you do. Mm-hmm. And and I suppose from there, where my, my interest in child feeding really developed was through hearing stories from my clients about their own relationship with food and the, really the genesis of some of their problems around food and body image stemmed from sort of feeding dynamics in childhood and that really led me to ask the question of is there a better way uh, of doing this where we can prevent disordered eating, prevent eating disorders and um, and still encourage people to have a a very balanced approach to, to eating. And to have a healthy relationship with their bodies as well, and and so that led me to kind of the work around Ellen Satter's division of responsibility in feeding, and and I use that clinically to help parents mostly with um, their concerns about about their children's feeding and eating. And I always like to give this disclaimer at the beginning of podcasts and things where I'm talking about child feeding is that. I'm not a parent myself, um, at least not currently. I will be in about four months' time. Oh, Uh, congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. So it's kind of, I suppose there's a a personal interest for me as well as I'm kind of thinking about, you know, eventually weaning um, my own baby and and their relationship with food as, as they grow up. So it's personal and professional.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, congratulations It's exciting. You know we we are so aligned with you, and the, the Hayes rabbit hole sounds very familiar. And we're hoping that our listeners will skip merrily with us down the haze the health at every size um, rabbit hole. Last season on on our podcast, you you may know, um, and listeners you may remember that we we did talk about intuitive eating with uh, Evelyn Triboli. She gave us a nice little one oh one, and we've also tried to talk a lot, as much as we can, about the division of responsibilities. Ellen Satter also informs our clinical work in practice, but very much so the sort of tenets of body positive parenting. But since we have you, um, and we're in our second season, we'd love to kind of just dig a little deeper. And- I think we've talked a bit about why it's important to raise intuitive eaters, but I don't think we can hear it enough. So it'd be great to hear you kind of share a little bit. And also, if you can help us answer this question, like, why isn't it always so intuitive for parents to raise their kids as intuitive eaters?
2: Yeah, so I've been thinking a little bit uh, about this question. And unfortunately, I I don't think it's straightforward. and, And I I want to also acknowledge that I know that when when it comes to feeding children, parents and caregivers are always doing their best. And it's really always coming from um, a well-intentioned place. And part of what I do in my work is, is I'm trying not to, to apply more pressure and more guilt to parenting because I know that there's so much of that in there. So I just want to acknowledge everyone's doing their best, but they're are some ways in which those great intentions can kind of go awry and um, and cause difficulties in, in the feeding relationship. And where, where it sort of starts for me, I think, is that we forget that children are relatively inexperienced with food and sort of expect them to be these fully formed, competent eaters from the get-go without really giving them the, the chance or the opportunity to experiment and learn. And that can manifest as sort of us putting, pr- applying pressure to children to clear their, their plate. Or um, perhaps we have an instinct to kind of coerce or bribe or cajole our kids to eat their vegetables. Also, because we live in diet culture, we might be inclined to restrict fun foods. Uh, so, like cookies or chips or, or whatever it might be. And the, what the research tells us is that that can end up leading to emotional eating, which I have, I have issues with that, but let's maybe not go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, but it can also lead to eating in the absence of hunger, um, sneaking food, disordered eating behaviors. We, c- we can also tie fun foods, like on the opposite end of the spectrum, we can tie them to specific behaviors and use them as rewards. Again, because of the context of diet culture, we can sometimes create food hierarchies, so like good food, bad food, healthy food, unhealthy food, which, because you know depending on the developmental stage of the child, might be really inappropriate because they're interpreting that in a really all or nothing black or white way, because nutrition is is a fairly complicated topic. There's a lot of, of nuance um, that that some children just might not be able to to understand, and I often think about it from the perspective that you know when it comes to English or math or teaching a language, we we teach that incrementally, you know you know we build on that over time. But when we're teaching nutrition, it's like you know this is a healthy food, this is an unhealthy food, you know from from a very early age, and we don't kind of build in the the same structures as we would when we're teaching another skill or, um, or topic. So, I mean, there, there are loads more, I could probably list some other reasons as to, as to why the the feeding relationship gets complicated, but I think that's maybe a good starting place.
1: Yeah. Great starting place. And speaking of starting places, let's start, I mean, maybe just you, like, what are you thinking of, in terms of how you can raise your child as an intuitive eater at the kind of beginning stage, starting with the baby stage? The the, the wonderful thing about the
2: division of responsibility in feeding is that it adapts to the specific uh, stage that the child is in. So I would be from the get-go trying to apply division of responsibility in feeding. And that looks Slightly different in in infancy than it does during the the weaning stage and in, in toddlerhood and then moving you know to older children so just as a reminder the division of responsibility kind of postulates that children when under the the right circumstances when they're given solid structure they are able to feed themselves competently and the way that it that it sort of develops this structure is by breaking responsibilities down into the the jobs and responsibilities that the parents are responsible for and those that the child is responsible for so the parents are responsible for what food to offer where to offer the meal or snack um, and when to offer the snack or meal time. So that's that regular predictable structure. so that the child knows that um, you know food will be consistent and regular um, and that they don't have to go you know huge periods of time without eating something. And then the child is responsible for the how much, to eat based on their own subjective feelings of hunger and fullness and then whether to eat from what has been offered. So remember that the parent is offering the what and then from within that the child gets to choose what they eat from from what's provided. So then when it comes to infants so that the parent really only has one job in or the caregiver has one job in that instance and that is they're only responsible for the what to feed so in milk feeding stage it's going to be either breast milk or bottle milk and then they might have a decision if they are breastfeeding if that's expressed milk um, in a bottle or milk straight from the breast so that's the the kid or the baby is responsible for the when the where the how much and the whether. and then as we move through weaning the parent begins to become responsible for the the when and the where, as well as being responsible for the what. So that's kind of the constant that the parent is always responsible for the what. And then in toddlerhood, the parent starts to become responsible for the when and the where, because they don't have uh, a demanding baby who is determining the when and the where of, of eating. And then as kids get a little bit older, uh, they, they will start to move more towards an adult's eating pattern. So that might be sort of three, three meals and however many snacks a day, but that would be once they've, they've developed skills around eating, but obviously their portion sizes are going to be a lot smaller because their bodies are a lot smaller. So yeah, I would definitely be starting with the division of responsibility. And I think that this is a really helpful framework. Although, when we're working with, with parents, there are some other kind of key principles that that we tend to keep in mind. We we have a tendency to put pressure on children to to like clear their plate or to eat their veggies. And, you know, that can in some instances, there are lots and lots of reasons as to why like fussy eating or picky eating might develop. But we know that putting pressure on children can kind of confound the problem. So generally something that has been shown consistently in the literature is that if we expose children to food the literature says 10 to 15 times but my sense is it's probably more like 15 to 20 times that we have to expose a child to a food before they will accept that, that food but we have to also be mindful of not putting pressure around that food exposure so we talk about the concept of low pressure food exposure so that we are we're exposing the kid to the food but there isn't necessarily um, an expectation that they will eat that food if the food is even there, because another way that we could do that is exposing children to food outside of the meal time as well, which I think parents tend to forget about. we We I think all know the advice to you know, put a little bit of sweet corn on the plate, for example, but we maybe think less about playing. With sweet corn in like a play kitchen, or teaching kids about how sweet corn is grown, if you you know have access to um, slash the skills to grow sweet corn in your garden, you know we we tend not to think about the ways outside of the mealtime that we can expose kids to food. So um, I think that can be a really helpful contextors are these low low pressure
0: food exposure. I just wanted to respond to that. I, I actually think that's it's a really helpful reminder because I think what I see and not just what I see, but what I actually really like deeply empathize with is when the food that you may, whether you knew it or not, you're really working on just exposure. That's the point of that particular food. Let's lean into sweet corn, right? That the purpose of the sweet corn offering the sweet corn would be the exposure but you're sort of at cross purposes if then what you're also doing and i've seen this like i've seen this with people i know feeding their kids in front of me they also are like well that's your nutrition for this meal and it's understandable because you know i i get it from just being a parent like you want your kid to fill up on wholesome foods and foods that's going to fuel you know that are going to fuel them and i get it but in a way you know, especially if sweet corn is, you know, the example of food that would be a new food that you're exposing them to, you have to pick a purpose, right? And I really, I love what you're saying, because we've heard that statistic as well. And I I have also thought it was more about around like 15 to 20, you know, times of exposure. But I think what I hear you saying is, this doesn't have to be 20 times where the corn was on the plate. This might be a combination of exposing the new food on the plate at a meal time in a low stakes way, where there's other food on the table, and also a trip to the farmer's market, and also like a a, a book about corn or whatever, like or putting corn in the play kitchen, which is maybe more um, experiential. But I actually think that's a really helpful takeaway.
2: Yeah, I think we should be exposing the food in a low pressure way by serving it alongside familiar foods that we know that will be accepted that, you know, are going to meet nutrition requirements. So I think that's an important caveat is, you know, you could maybe do peas and sweet corn. If you know that if the child will eat peas, then it's quite easy to tack on, you know, some frozen sweet corn on the side.
1: I also want to just, because I think parents get really hung up on what their kids are eating in a way that is detrimental ultimately to their kind of relaxation and fun around the family meal and the kids is I just want to make sure that we we don't set up this expectation that if you get to 20, right. your kids should be eating it and should be eating it every time because that's not what we're saying. I just want to make sure because I think people kind of – it's just so easy to hear that number and be like, okay, so 20 all I times. have to do is do it 20 yeah. times and then they're going to eat it every single time. And really, it's like they may try it one time or they may put it in their mouth. That would be victorious. Um, yeah. And they may not eat it. And it doesn't mean that you should stop exposing right. them, but it also doesn't mean that they're going to all of a sudden love sweet corn. Right.
2: I think that that's so crucial for parents to keep in mind because I think parents can get really frustrated um, that they've they've cooked and prepared something and, and persevered, and the temptation might be then to just lean into familiar and accepted foods, and kind of give up on 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 the exposure piece. And so my advice to parents is, if, you know, if you can kind of grin and bear it and keep exposing, then you are you're just increasing the likelihood that they will eat that food and particularly if you're doing that in a in a low pressure way as well. So, yeah, I suppose the the take home there is don't give up. You know, even if after 20 exposures they're not they're not there, it goes back to this piece that that kids are inexperienced with with food and I'm sure we can all think of something that we didn't love eating as a child until you know into into adulthood when our palates had really developed and you know our friends and things were eating them as well so we just have to we have to be mindful of that
1: and give kids a chance I want to really like underscore that I was talking to a parent friend the other day and I was like when do you remember starting to eat kale when do I remember starting to eat kale in our 20s like it's ridiculous to be expecting our five-year-old to eat kale you know and just kind of reminding ourselves that we are okay eaters at least I feel that I'm a pretty competent eater at this point now and and that I did your time I took my time and I think that that on some level that is normal and we need to be careful in our culture right now I think there's just even since when we were we were five you know there's so much more Diet culture, wellness culture, you know, there's just so much more pressure Mm -hmm. on all these different kind of foods that are not generally accepted by young kids. And, yeah, yeah, just to underscore that, like, just for everyone listening, think about when did you start eating more of a variety? And it probably wasn't since you were five. I, I think what tends to
0: get murky, and this sort of brings us to our next question about picky eaters It can sometimes be hard for parents to tell the difference between what's sort of just on that continuum of normal and, you know, any given meal, if I just took a small snapshot of what my kids are eating, I could probably convince myself they are picky eaters. But if I take a big wide shot, I don't actually think they are that picky, but there are picky eaters. And I know there are diagnoses that some of these picky eaters are given. And I think we'll talk more about that in another episode, but let's talk about picky eaters and where it comes from and how can parents best respond to kids when they perceive them to be picky eaters?
2: So I think the first thing I would encourage parents to do is as best they can to try and relax, as difficult and as challenging as as that might be, but also to keep in mind that pickiness, fussiness is a normal developmental stage. And there are data that suggest that 50% or more of children go through a sort of more selective period with their food you know we can talk about from an evolutionary perspective it was really important to be skeptical about foods and we've maintained that behavior even though it no longer serves us because generally everything that we eat is safe short of if there's like a an outbreak of E. coli or something like that so it's an evolutionary mechanism it's developmentally appropriate for for a lot of children and it's fairly normal if we want to use that word so trying best you can to relax because if we start putting pressure on kids, like I said, that could potentially backfire and make the situation worse. And and I think one of you already alluded to this as well. If we can try and kind of take a step back and look at the bigger picture, I think that's also really helpful. So, you know, just a kind of a quick inventory of things to be thinking about. Are the children or is the child growing? In a way that you would expect, are they meeting you know developmental stages that you would expect? Are they playing and have enough energy? You know, are they getting enough sleep? Are they generally well? Like kids have kind of underdeveloped immune systems, so to say that they're always one hundred percent you know not getting coughs and colds and things is probably unrealistic. But you know, generally speaking, are they not getting unwell? So. Thinking about, yeah, the bigger picture and and are they, generally speaking, thriving? I think that's really important to, to keep in context. And then, again, I'm going back to the division of responsibility. Do you have that regular structure in place? Are they going to the table hungry? Have they had enough time in between meals and snacks? And, you know, maybe they come home after school and have a snack at, like, let's say, four o'clock and then if you're having dinner at five o'clock well then we need to be realistic about how hungry they're actually going to be so that's something else to keep in mind we've talked a lot about exposing foods in in a low pressure way and serving unfamiliar foods alongside more familiar foods and, and letting kids explore so if you can do the sort of um, family style meals as well I think that could be a lot less overwhelming for children if they can select what they want, rather than if we were to overload their plate with our expectations of of what we think that they should be eating. So, So that's something that you could try. Probably the most important thing when it comes to feeding children in general and not just kind of fussy or picky eating is checking in with ourselves and what we're role modeling to children. Do we have a good relationship with food, first and foremost? Are we eating a wide variety of different foods? Do our children see us making a face when we're eating broccoli or chicken? Or did they see us, you know, generally enjoying the food that we eat? I've seen that sometimes where, where parents have a slightly different set of standards for themselves than they do for their children, and um, we know that children are are like little sponges and that they will do what the people around them are doing. So checking in with ourselves and and seeing are we modeling the behaviors that we would want our children to adopt as well.
1: How do you help parents who come in and ask um about like their kids who are sneaking food and eating it in secret? They're maybe like not eating at mealtimes but you're finding or they are eating at mealtimes but you're finding kind of wrappers or evidence of sneaking food
2: yeah so um I've got a really vivid memory of of this happening with with one of my clients where she went into her son's bedroom and she was cleaning up and she found lots of chocolate bar wrappers under under his bed and um We again, we sort of were doing some work on her relationship with food, and it turns out that she had been doing some kind of secretive eating, and because of the sort of dieting mentality that she was caught up in herself. So, for me, there is a piece of this that that does go back to working on your own relationship with food where possible and kind of eliminating the diet mentality from the whole household because I think. We might think I'm just in my own dieting bubble as an adult, but I think that it has a domino effect for the rest of the family potentially. So that's something to consider. And so what we did with that particular family was the, the mum had been kind of keeping foods off limits, restricting fun foods. And basically, essentially what had happened was the child had developed a sort of scarcity mindset around those foods, which was driving them to steal and sneak foods in, into their bedroom. And um, I think what we did was this child was a little bit older, so Mum was able to have a conversation with her son and say, "I know historically i've I've told you that these foods were bad or that they were you know unhealthy, and actually, I think I was wrong about those foods, and I want you to be able to enjoy them without guilt, so she was able to have you know a sort of developmentally appropriate conversation with the child with a younger child. It obviously might not be as easy as that." But we also, I think she had like a, a a sweet drawer in the kitchen where she had chocolates and biscuits and things like that, and the child understood that they were able to have access to that. You know, again, using the division of responsibility. So at snack times, for dessert, things like that. Um, so we were still applying that structure, but you were kind of reassuring the child that they weren't restricted from having those foods and that they could have them as part of a normal meal or snack. Now. I know what parents might be thinking here (laughs) and yes it is totally normal after a period of restriction that a child might go bananas for that food but if you can try not to respond to that as as much as possible with like nerves or anxiety or kind of looking over your shoulder all of the time then that that behavior will abate itself and and they will over time, develop trust that they are allowed to have those foods freely and openly. And so they will be able to essentially moderate themselves over time.
0: That fear comes up so much for parents. And, you know, it sounds like you, you guys did a great job with that particular family, because if the parent can just talk to their child in a non shaming way and address it, don't ignore it, you know, because it is, it's, it's a behavior. It's a, It's a concerning behavior, not the consumption of the chocolate, but the fact that it's appearing like the child thinks they have to hide it. And so to be able to, one, talk about it, address it, sort of lift the shame, make it okay, I think it's great. We've gotten a lot of feedback on the podcast that no matter what we've done, we can always repair. We can always say, you know, I was wrong. Like, I'm learning. There's actually nothing wrong with chocolate. In fact, we're going to have more of it in the house. And that often is so powerful to then have this food that seemed forbidden, that had sort of the scarcity and mentality around it, start to become a food that's just like just available. And there's no morality and that you can have it when we say it's time to pick your snack, right? Like I, I like that you're preserving the division of responsibility in terms of the structure. Because the structure, I think, often helps an anxious parent who's like, oh, they're never going to stop eating chocolate. It's like, well, first of all, that's that's not going to happen because, like, intuitive eaters stop when they're feeling like they've had enough. But also, you're saying when and you're saying what and when. Like, you still get to have a say. So it's very helpful. I think a lot of people are thinking this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think two things. One, I think the underscoring that our own relationship with food. I mean, I know I've worked with so many parents and families and also just know so many parents that might say to me, well, I don't have a relationship with chocolate. I can't have it in the house or I can't have this in the house. Mm -hmm. That is very, very common. Some of this is extremely, extremely hard to do, raising an intuitive eater, if you're not working on that yourself. So on one hand, it can be very easy and freeing but for some people it's terrifying Um, and I think it's just important if that's you and you're listening there's resources to explore it within yourself and it'll make it so much easier to parent and do this for your children. The second thing is I just remember reading a lot of Ellen Satter recently and really her talking about when some behavior like that's happening like whether it's at a friend's house or it's happening at your house where things are hidden, a grandparent's house, and you're noticing signs of a kid kind of going overboard, it probably means that it's a bit forbidden in your house and and we need to figure out a way to integrate it into that structure of meals and snacks. So I always kind of try to help walk parents towards if you're noticing, and this is just when I sit with clients adult clients too if you're noticing kind of binge type behavior or behavior that feels like it's being hidden it likely means like there's not enough exposure there's not enough of that relationship to that the child has to this food that I can have it it's available I can have it if I want it so I just wanted to underscore those two things yeah, and I think it's it's also important to say if you
2: know somebody's going through this process with their children at the moment and reintroducing previously forbidden foods, that at first that the kid probably will eat more than probably feels good for them. And that might make you feel a bit anxious and a bit nervous that they're never going to to be able to sort of self-moderate for one maybe of a better word. But the child will likely pick up on your apprehension and your nervousness about that, which could keep that cycle going longer, potentially. And there is a piece that the child's perceiving deprivation and they kind of need to almost overshoot how much, let's say, chocolate they need for a period in order for their bodies to reestablish trust that that food is no longer scarce. And that can take quite a long time in some instances. So if it's not happening, you know, if after a couple of weeks, they're still eating more than you might expect, I wouldn't have said that that was a
0: problem, even though it might feel like one for
2: us. I'm not sure if I've explained that very yeah. well, so I don't know if you want to oh, jump yes. in there.
0: No, you, you totally have, and I think that we've talked about that. I know there's different expressions like the honeymoon stage or, you know, this idea that in a way adults and children alike like often will overdo it, and I like that you were pointing out even overdo it from the intuitive eating perspective, right? Like as a parent you might say, oh, it's too much, it's too much, but I hear you saying, actually, it's also kind of normal and to be expected that the kid would almost eat more than they even wanted, just as part of this reestablishment process that this is to be trusted and they're getting in touch with their actual relationship to that food. So it makes total sense and it's important for all parents to really hear that. And again, it goes back to what everyone was really addressing, but what Leslie was just talking about, that this is hard. This can be really hard and it's going to be harder for a parent that doesn't have that trust with themselves or didn't get to have that trust intact as a child. And unfortunately, for a lot of us, we grew up in families or, in, in you know, in just a culture that didn't really care so much about that or wasn't so conscientious. That's the diet culture piece of it all. So I think it was very clear. It was, it's was it been so lovely talking to you, but we we don't want to wrap up before asking you our final question, which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did one thing on the regular, what's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? Well, I
2: think we've probably um, mentioned this already, but as much as, as is possible, if parents are able to work on their own relationship with food. I think that will really set their children up to also have a good relationship with food um, as as they move through life. Like we talked about kids are kind of sponges and you know those foundations that we lay in terms of our our relationship with food will ultimately kind of be imprinted in into our children. So yeah, modeling a healthy relationship with food, modeling a healthy relationship with your body. I think it is really important when we come to thinking about child feeding. And and I think, you know, as an extension of that, acknowledging that no relationship is perfect. And so having some self-compassion for when that feels difficult.
0: Right
1: all right well thank you so much thank you laura and we'll make sure to share some resources um, for our listeners to find you and to find more information about what what we've talked about today thanks so much for having me so zoe how's raising intuitive eaters been going in your family
0: i think it's going okay i mean it's I relate to a lot of the, the pitfalls because it can be very can be very hard. I think those moments where your kid just doesn't want to eat or, you know, you make this beautiful meal and you try your darndest at exposure and then they literally just take the garlic bread. I have a lot of empathy for all the parents that have asked us questions like, oh, does this really work? But I think that th- those little moments where I see – one of my kids sample a food that they might not have had or that surprises me continues to uh, make me feel like it's going well. And I think also what makes me feel like it's going well is their general, overall attitude of like coming to the table and chatting and and exuding a sense of no one's going to judge them if they just take the garlic bread. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. Like when my son took a, zu- a slice of zucchini recently. And, and ate, he put it in his mouth, he ate a piece, and he was like, eh, I don't like it. I was like, yes, this is working, <laughs> you know, because I didn't have to say you have to or you won't get dessert if you don't. And it, it didn't even bother me so much that he didn't like it, you know. He just took it on his own accord and then put it down. And so that makes me feel like it's going and it's not, a, it's a process.
1: <laughs> How about you? I think what I've been most Struck by is really how non-intuitive it is. Like so I, I feel like I, I'm like constantly adjusting to really make sure I'm staying aligned with the the division of responsibility. And there's so many players in my kid's life around food, mm-hmm. and it's just. I think we were talking about this the other day about about your kids' lunch, yes. right? And just, where they take the the sweet? Yeah, and there's just so many players, but one thing that's been really beautiful is just watching over the holidays we got an assortment of Italian biscuits, and in Italy it's really common for kids to eat biscuits and milk for breakfast.
0: And the biscuits are like cookies, cookies yeah.
1: basically. And so my kids have been having a lot of fun with this, and Mm -hmm. it's just a really interesting moment for me to be like, okay, this is not what we typically do in our house for breakfast, but I really want them to enjoy what it's like to eat cookies and milk for breakfast and what it's like to be an Italian kid for a little (laughs) while. And the interesting thing is one of my kids is really interested in it right now and the other one is not at all. And I'm like, dude, you have cookies and milk for breakfast I'm inside, I'm saying that. (laughs) Outside she's like, I want oatmeal and I'm like, okay, you know, and we we with breakfast we offer a couple options. We have ability right now to, thankfully, to offer them a couple things um, and and have the time to prepare it. But um, it's just nice to see. So mm-hmm. I would say I think it's going well. I would say I can really relate to how much diet culture comes in and this angst around their eating comes in. And I, I even in kind of the world that I work in and all the work I've already done on my own eating and... Other people's eating, it's quite a challenge to just like bat back all that dialogue that's happening around whether it's good enough.
0: It's so hard. And I'm thinking just this conversation today reminded me of an anecdote that a friend who came to our last parent talk who gave me permission to share this on the podcast, it it feels fitting. Again, it's like an example of how hard this is in, in unexpected ways that my friend who has explained that sugar, you know, she's got some negative connotations around it in terms of it being a bad, not-so-friendly uh, food. But also she has just genetically has had really bad teeth. And so she's been really protective over her kids' like dental hygiene because of their inevitable genetic load that would maybe make them susceptible to lots of dental issues and painful, expensive surgeries, et cetera. And so she showed me a video that their babysitter sent her of her daughter having a flat out meltdown, like lying on the floor, screaming and crying, having torn the pantry apart. Like I saw I saw it all. Looking for these gummy bears or uh, fruit snacks. And it was such an obvious extreme reaction to this kid who all she wants is fruit snacks. And they had literally been hidden for – kind of understandable reasons. Like, it's like I want to protect my kid's teeth. And she had a good sense of humor about it. And I, I was looking at her like, I think you know the answer. <laughs> like, you got to bring them out, bring the fruit snacks out and and kind of let your kid have them and, and then appreciate that there's risks on both sides. There's significant psychological risks restricting these. Look at what's happening. This kid is tantruming and tearing your pantry apart and getting some idea that there's something really sensational about fruit snacks. And then of course on the flip side if she eats the fruit snacks, yeah, like better brush your teeth well that night. So I share it because it's of course it's totally re- relevant to what we're talking about today and also offers a little bit of compassion to this mom friend like this is this is hard. It's not always even intellectually, like, easy to wrap your head around because there's always some kind of cost-benefit analysis that you have to sort through. So I, I hope my friend has given <laughs> given her kids some fruit snacks at this point and brushed her teeth well, you know. But I guess I, I'm leaving us with that story just to illuminate how this stuff is real. Like, kids really feel the deprivation and that that has real effects. And also, it's not easy always for us to – Loosen the reins or act unintuitively, right? Which is ironic because we're talking about raising intuitive eaters. No,
1: but we're mostly not intuitive eaters. I right. mean, I think it takes a lot of work to get back to that. Indeed, as many of our colleagues spend, and we too spend a lot of time helping our our clients and and people get back to intuitive eating. So that's our show. Yeah, we'd love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode. So please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so new people can find the podcast. Yes, and always please consider
0: becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so we can continue producing and delivering this content to you all.
1: Thanks so much for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.